Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you will find our text on page 775. There is no children's church on the second Sunday of the month, which is uh, today. Uh, we do uh, want uh, parents to be uh, training children to uh, listen to sermons, to sit through sermons, uh, to engage with the preaching of God's Word. And uh, so uh, this is a great opportunity for that this morning. Uh, though we do have the library available where we are broadcasting the service, so parents, if you would find that a more helpful place uh, for training your children to listen to the sermon, uh, that is available. I do encourage you to take out the outline that is provided in the bulletin, which shows you where we're going this morning, and to take notes on that outline, and later on to use the questions found on the back side. In the Bible, from the time of Abraham through the time of Jonah, we see that God has purpose to save the nations. Think of those words that God spoke to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that promise, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right there, at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of God's promises to Abraham, that in Abraham all the families of the earth, not just Abraham's physical descendants, but all the families of the earth would be blessed by God. Ultimately, that is the blessing of salvation. The blessing of imputed righteousness, of being justified by grace through faith. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We read in Psalm 22 that prophecy of Christ's suffering upon the cross and His resurrection in that a messianic psalm, we read in Psalm 22, verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. This prophecy that all the nations will turn to the Lord to truly worship Him. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 through 43, uh, we have uh, a prayer of Solomon in dedicating the, the temple. And in that prayer, he prays, Likewise, when a foreigner, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. In that prayer before the nation of Israel, unto the God of Israel, that prayer that was led by the Spirit of God, the king prays this in order that all the peoples of the earth may know God's name and fear you. That's the purpose of God. In Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, and Amos was a contemporary of the prophet Jonah. Amos's ministry probably started a little bit prior to Jonah's ministry. Amos prophesies in chapter 9, verses 11 and following. The Lord says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. It wouldn't just be the nation of Israel that would be called by the Lord's name. But we see in this prophecy uh, that all the nations would one day be called by God's name. We also see in the Old Testament that God purposed to use Israel as His instrument to bring salvation to the nations. Psalm 67, verses 1 and following say, May God be gracious to us and bless us. The us is the nation of Israel. May God be gracious to us and bless us 
and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So this was what God's people were to pray. This was inspired by the Spirit for the nation of Israel to pray that the Lord would bless them in order that the Lord's saving power would be known to all the nations. And they were to pray, let all the peoples praise you. We have a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 through 19. The Lord says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from then, from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. It was prophesied that Israel would declare the glory of God among all the nations and that God would gather all the nations and tongues. Like these various passages, the book of Jonah also reveals God's purpose to save the nations and to use His redeemed people as His instrument in this. However, the book of Jonah reveals this in a more personal way. Many of us can relate to Jonah, who was reluctant to speak God's word to the Ninevites, and at first outright disobeyed God and tried to run away from God. We need the message of this book of Jonah, deeply impressed on our hearts by the Spirit of God, in order that our heart would beat more fully with God's missionary hearts. I'm going to read to us Jonah chapter 3, so please stand in honor of the word of God if you are able. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This passage shows us that God's salvation is for the nations, so that you and I will have a heart for their salvation. In this passage, we will first of all see the Lord's servant is resent. Secondly, the Lord's servant obeys. Third, the Lord's powerful word. And fourth, the Lord's great mercy. First of all, we see the Lord's servant is resent. Look with me at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now this is almost word for word, of what chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 said. The biggest difference is that this is the second time for the word of the Lord to come to his prophet Jonah. 
with this message. Now, disobedient prophets do not always receive a second opportunity to obey. Jonah here receives a second opportunity to obey. But there's no guarantee of a second opportunity. Think of the disobedient prophet in 1 Kings chapter 13, who was from Judah. The Lord sent him uh, to Bethel. Uh, There at Bethel, there was an idolatrous altar. Uh, King Jeroboam was responsible for that. And the Lord sent his prophet from Judah to Bethel to prophesy against that altar. And the Lord had told his prophet, uh, do not stop to eat or to drink when you are in Bethel, but come straight back here after you have given my prophecy against the altar. Now, after he gave the prophecy, there was an old prophet in Bethel who lied to this prophet from Judah. He deceived him. And being deceived, the prophet from Judah stopped for a meal in the home of the old prophet. Disobeying the clear word that God had given to that prophet. And while he's in the the old prophet's home, the old prophet prophesies and says, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your father. And the prophet from Judah leaves that house. He heads back towards, towards Judah. And very soon, there's a lion who's been sent by the Lord. And that lion kills the disobedient prophet. He had one opportunity to obey. He disobeyed, and God took his life. No second opportunity for that disobedient prophet. But here, Jonah is given a second opportunity to obey. Because the Lord had sovereignly purposed to save the Ninevites, through the preaching of Jonah. The Lord showed grace and mercy to Jonah when Jonah was in disobedience. The Lord showed grace and mercy in saving Jonah from drowning in that raging sea. The Lord turned Jonah's heart back to the Lord while he was in the belly of that great fish. The Lord granted Jonah repentance when he was in the belly of that great fish. And this grace and mercy that the Lord showed to his prophet was meant by God to prepare Jonah for the mission that God was giving him to go and proclaim God's word to the Ninevites. God delights in using sinners saved by grace as his instruments in the world. And here the Lord resends Jonah to Nineveh. A man who has been saved by God's grace. A man who has been shown the mercy of God is now resent to Nineveh. Back in chapter 1 verse 2, the Lord had told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And now the Lord says in chapter 3 verse 2, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Here the Lord sends Jonah as his official messenger, his official ambassador. And it will be for Jonah to faithfully deliver the message that the Lord tells him. It will not be for Jonah to critique the message. It will not be for Jonah to revise the message. It will not be for Jonah to make the message more culturally relevant. And our mission as Christ's church is the same. As those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, we are to faithfully deliver the word of Christ to the world. Not critiquing that message. Not revising that message. Not trying to make the message more culturally relevant. But faithfully delivering the message as Christ gave it to us in His word. We are to be faithful to Him who sent us And we're to be faithful to the message that he has given to us to proclaim. 
What we need is not ingenuity. What we need is knowledge of the message, understanding of the message, and obedient hearts. And by God's grace, we see in the next section, the Lord's servant obeys. Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Think of how different this response is than Jonah's previous response in chapter 1 when his response was to to flee from the presence of the Lord as far away from Nineveh as he could go, going towards Tarshish. But now he arises and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is the fruit of repentance. This is the fruit of God's work in Jonah's heart that he obeys the word of the Lord. As we will see in chapter 4, Jonah does not have a mature attitude about this mission But we should not minimize the fact that Jonah obeys the word of the Lord. Jonah goes to Nineveh, which if his starting point is Joppa, where he had departed in that ship, if Joppa is the starting point for this journey to Nineveh, then it's a journey of about 500 to 600 miles that Jonah makes. A journey that would last at least a month, depending on if he was walking or riding in a caravan. We continue in verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now the ESV took some liberty in their translation when they say it's three days' journey in breadth. Literally, the New American Standard translates it a three days' walk. Not necessarily in breadth, but just a three days' walk. Now the three days' walk might refer to the diameter of the city of Nineveh, or it might refer to the circumference of the city of Nineveh, or it might refer to the time that it would take to walk through the city proclaiming the message. Now when it speaks of Nineveh here, it might not just refer to the city proper that would be enclosed by walls, it might also include the surrounding area. We speak of the New York metropolitan area, or the, the greater New York City area which encompasses cities in New Jersey, cities in Connecticut, includes Long Island, the greater New York City area, the New York metropolitan area. Uh, here, some, something similar might be in mind. The walled city of Nineveh and the surrounding communities. That, that could be. We, we just don't know. The point, though, is that this is a very large city. It's called a great city. And we're told that it's three days' journey um, in some respect. A very large city. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah here is probably speaking in Aramaic, which was the common language in the ancient Near East at this time. And Jonah calls out against Nineveh the message that the Lord told him. God is warning Nineveh that he will overthrow them because of their evil. That he will overturn them because of their evil. Now what cities had God previously overthrown? Repeatedly the Old Testament speaks of how the Lord overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah in his anger and wrath meaning that he utterly destroyed them. And the means by which God utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was raining down fire and brimstone. He burned those cities uh, until they were just ash. In some way, the Lord is is warning that he will overthrow them. He will overturn them. He will utterly destroy Nineveh. God warns Nineveh that in 40 days he will do this. In 40 days he will utterly destroy them. This is a warning of judgment that if if Nineveh will not repent, they will be utterly wiped off the map by the Lord God. Think of how very merciful God is to warn the wicked before overthrowing them in judgment. God is holy, He is just, and He has every right to overthrow the wicked without a warning. 
Yet He warned us of His impending judgment. And, and having saved us from that judgment through the gospel, He now makes us to be His messengers, warning others of His impending judgment if they will not turn from their sin to God. Now some people today, looking at a city like Nineveh, would react against Jonah's message, saying that people like the Ninevites don't know better. But the Bible says all people know better. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is teaching that those who do not have the Scriptures, basically the Gentiles of Paul's day, are under the righteous condemnation of God and need the salvation that is provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 is where I want to start reading. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the, the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We see here, God has sufficiently revealed His existence to every single human being. He revealed His existence to the Ninevites, and He's revealed His existence to every other human being in all of history. He's revealed His existence. He's revealed something of His nature. He has revealed to us His right over our life. He has revealed His standard for how we, His creatures made in His image, are to live. And it is His mercy when, as in our text, He proclaims through His redeemed people a warning of impending judgment. The Ninevites had no excuse for their sin. No excuse for their evil. No excuse for their idolatry. God had made Himself known to them in general revelation. You look at creation with God's law written on our hearts. They knew of God, but they suppressed the truth of God. Rather than honoring God and giving thanks as they ought to have, they worshipped created things, they worshipped idols in God's place, and they transgressed the law of God that was written on their heart, and they committed every form of evil. The Ninevites were not an innocent people, they were not an ignorant people, now, God's condemnation was justly upon them. 
And God had every right to utterly overthrow them in judgment. But in his mercy, he sends his prophet to warn them. To warn them of impending judgment if they do not repent. That is the mercy of God. This warning of God's judgment is a warning that Jesus repeatedly gave during his ministry. We read in Luke chapter 13, verse 1 and following, that there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus warned of God's judgment. He repeatedly warned of God's judgment and called upon sinners to repent and to come to Him for salvation. As disciples of Christ entrusted with the gospel, this warning is a warning that we are to repeatedly proclaim. This warning of God's impending judgment. And as we proclaim the message, we are to be mindful of the power of God's Word as used in hearts by the Spirit of God. And that's what we see in the next section of our text is the Lord's powerful word. Come back to Jonah and look at chapter 3, verse 5. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, in the book of Jonah, there are several miracles. Uh, there's the great storm. Uh, which made the sailors fear for their lives, and which God calmed when Jonah was thrown overboard. There's the great deliverance of Jonah when he was about to drown and the great fish swallowed him, and the preservation of Jonah in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and the depositing of Jonah on dry ground. In chapter 4, there will be the plant that grew up to shade Jonah, then withered and was followed by a scorching east wind. There are various miracles in the book of Jonah. But the greatest miracle, by far, is the response of the Ninevites to the Word of God. As they respond to the Word of God with faith and repentance. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us the natural person, that is the person who does not have the Spirit of God working in them, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, they are discerned by the Spirit. When Jeremiah will preach a century and a half after Jonah, warning that the Lord will overthrow Jerusalem, Jeremiah will be arrested and he will be imprisoned for treason. This message of warning that God will overthrow the city, will be understood as treason. He will be arrested and imprisoned for it. But what do we see here in Nineveh? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, saying that the people of Nineveh believed God is greater than saying that they believed Jonah. Jonah was speaking, but he was just the mouthpiece of God. The message wasn't Jonah's message, it was God's message. And the people of Nineveh believed God. This is the same way that Abraham responded to the word of God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That key passage on justification by faith. Abraham believed the Lord. Something very similar here. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And the verse goes on. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. What was sackcloth? Sackcloth was a coarse cloth, usually made of goat's hair, that was worn by the poorest of people. 
And when others put on sackcloth, it was an outward sign of an inward sorrow. For example, in the book of Genesis, uh, when Jacob's sons uh, deceived him and made him think that Joseph had been devoured by a fierce animal, we read in Genesis 37, verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Jacob had been his favored son, and when he sees evidence that he concludes means that Joseph is dead, he mourns, he grieves. And in that mourning, in that grieving, he puts on sackcloth, an outward expression of a deep inward sorrow. In the case of the Ninevites, putting on sackcloth symbolized that they were sorrowful over their evil deeds, which had come up before God. And they coupled the putting on of sackcloth with fasting. How could they eat when God's judgment was at hand? Sorrowing over their evil deeds, turning from their evil, and calling out to God was far more important than eating. So they fasted. Now I want you to observe in our text how immediate Nineveh's response was to the word of God. Verse 3 said that Nineveh was three days' journey in breadth. Verse 4 says that Jonah had only gone one day's journey before the city responded then in verse 5 with the people believing God, calling for a fast, putting on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is a, an almost immediate response to the proclamation of God's word. Also observe how widespread was Nineveh's response to the word of God. As it says there at the end of verse 3, that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then in verse 6, look at what we find there. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Who is this king of Nineveh? He may be the king of the entire Assyrian Empire, as Nineveh was one of the main cities in the Assyrian Empire. Or he may have been the ruler of this great city, Nineveh. Or he may have been the governor of the region surrounding Nineveh, of which Nineveh would have been the capital of that region. Regardless, this person who is who's called here the king of Nineveh is the highest ruler who is resident in Nineveh. Now pay attention to his response to the word of God. He exchanged his royal robe for sackcloth. And he exchanged his throne for ashes. What was that showing when he stepped off his throne and he sat in ashes? It was an outward sign of deeply humbling himself before God. Verse 7 says that he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands, who knows, God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish." We see an indication here in verse 9 when he says, Who knows, God may turn and relent. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This would be an indication that the message that God gave through Jonah did not include an assurance of forgiveness if they would repent. But the repentant Ninevites have a hope that God will forgive them. The repentant Ninevites have a hope that God will relent of the judgment that he warned of even though the prophet has not assured them that this would be the case. And we see here that the king is so desperate that he even includes in his decree an order that domesticated animals not be given anything to eat or drink. 
and the domesticated animals be covered with sackcloth. Most importantly, the king calls upon everyone in Nineveh to call out mightily to God and to turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The Ninevites knew that they were guilty of violence. They knew it was evil in God's sight. They knew that it made them liable to God's judgment, just like their other evil deeds did. Jonah proclaims the Lord's message publicly in Nineveh, a message which certainly would have spread from person to person. And then the king even issues here this proclamation and publishes it throughout the whole city. Later on, Jesus would speak of Nineveh's remarkable response in the book of Luke. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and verse 29. Luke 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Then go down to verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this, this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. And they will be a testimony against those who heard the word of Christ and yet did not repent. The Ninevites repented even though they received less special revelation than the villages did to which Jesus came. Jesus was God incarnate. Jesus was the Father's revelation of himself. And Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and performing miracles the various villages to which he went, those villages received much special revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Nineveh received far less. Just a simple message from God through Jonah. Forty days, I will overthrow this city. That might be a summary of the message. There might have been more to it than that, but it was a simple message, far less special revelation. And they repented, Jesus said. So coming back to Jonah chapter 3, this is real repentance. This is genuine repentance that is recorded for us here in this remarkable response to the preaching of Jonah. What we see in Jonah 3 is not worldly sorrow, that leads to death, but we see here godly sorrow and genuine repentance that leads to salvation. Now, what accounts for such a great response to Jonah's preaching of God's word? We know from history that this was a low point in a serious history. We know from 2 Kings 14.25 that Jonah ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. We know that during this time Assyria was attacked by various nations and that they did not do well in these battles. We also know that during this time, Assyria suffered famine and internal revolts. We know that there was even a total solar eclipse during this period, which Nineveh would have understood as a sign of a coming disaster. God does use means as he accomplishes his purpose in human hearts, and he could have used these things for his purpose. God uses difficult circumstances in our lives to humble us before him. He uses difficult circumstances in our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves, to show us our need for Him, to warn us of His coming judgment. And it would not be surprising if, in addition, God had already been preparing the hearts of the Ninevites for His message that He would give through Jonah. It's also possible that the Ninevites were aware of Jonah, having been swallowed by the great fish and deposited on the dry land. But regardless, nothing fully accounts for Nineveh's great response other than the special, gracious, sovereign working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts as they heard the word of God. In John 16, verse 8, Jesus says, 
And when the Helper comes, the Helper is the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How does the Holy Spirit do so? How does He convict regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment? He does so through the Word of God. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and Peter preached the word of Christ. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Jesus called upon them to repent and be baptized as a public expression of an inward faith in Christ. And thousands of souls were saved that day. The Holy Spirit worked through the word that was proclaimed by Peter, the word of Christ, to convict concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And thousands of souls were saved. Only the work of the Holy Spirit through the proclaimed word of God explains Nineveh's extraordinary response. Nineveh's response to the Word of God may be the largest, greatest response to the Word of, to the preaching of the Word of God that we see anywhere in the Bible. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit through the proclaimed Word of God that explains their extraordinary response. The Spirit illuminated the minds of the Ninevites. The Spirit called them into question before God's judgment seat. The Spirit awakened them to the true state of their hearts. The Spirit convinced and convicted them of their sin. The Spirit called them to turn to God for mercy and forgiveness through the preaching of the Word of God. It is the Spirit of God who gives the proclaimed Word of God its power. When the Spirit of God works thus in the hearts of the unregenerate, the effects are what we see in our text. Faith. We're told they believed God. And along with faith, repentance. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, answer number 87, gives an excellent definition of repentance. Quote, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's what repentance is. Jesus called upon sinners to repent and believe in him and be saved from the wrath that is to come. That's the message that we are to hold out. Now, what was God's sovereign purpose in Nineveh? God's sovereign purpose was to show His great mercy to the Ninevites. We see the Lord's great mercy in verse 10. Look at it. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Observe in this verse what God saw. He saw how they turned from their evil way. Without this, the fasting, the sackcloth, the sitting in ashes would have meant nothing without turning from their evil way. And observe how gracious God was to the Ninevites. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He forgave them. He saved them from his wrath. This was the Lord's sovereign purpose in sending Jonah to Nineveh. It was to show Nineveh his grace and His mercy. It was to save them from His judgment. It would be a misunderstanding of our text and a misunderstanding of the nature of God to conclude that God changed His plan in the middle of this chapter. It would be wrong for us to look at this and say, well, God's plan at first was to destroy Nineveh, but because they repented, God changed His plan and instead He forgave them. That would be a wrong understanding of this passage. We read in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is not wishy-washy. 
He doesn't change His plan. He doesn't change His purpose. God sovereignly purposed all along to showcase His grace and His mercy in the lives of the Ninevites. And toward this end, He sent them a warning of judgment and through the message graciously and effectually called them to repentance. God sovereignly brought about that in which He takes pleasure. I want you to turn over to Ezekiel 18 where a statement is made about what God takes pleasure in. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel was a prophet who ministered at least 150 years after Jonah, ministered during the beginning of the Babylonian exile. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, I want to begin reading. Verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. What the Lord takes pleasure in is that a sinner would turn from his evil way and would receive God's forgiveness and grace and mercy, and would live. That's what God takes pleasure in. And this is what the Lord sovereignly brought about in Nineveh through the instrumentality of Jonah's proclamation. The Lord brought about their turning from their evil ways and the giving of life to those who deserved death. The Lord delights in this, and He sovereignly brought it about. Now, this is meant by God, what we see in Jonah 3, is meant by God to raise a question that the New Testament clearly answers. The question is, how can God relent of the just punishment of evil and still be just? In other words, how can God forgive and still be just? Nineveh deserved to be wiped off the map for their evil deeds for their violence that the king acknowledged. They deserved this. God is just. And yet God forgave them. How can God forgive and still be just? If God had overthrown Nineveh, that would have been understandable. But he didn't. How is he just while he saves them? Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 19. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So a, a gift of righteousness, a right standing with God, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now notice in verse 25, 
in God's divine forbearance, he had, prior to the coming of Christ, he had passed over former sins. This includes what we saw in Jonah 3, when God forgave Nineveh and did not bring upon them the judgment that he had warned of. That was in God's forbearance, passing over their sins. He didn't hold them to account for their sins. He didn't, he didn't punish their sins. He passed over those sins as he forgave those sins. Now, how could God do this and still be just? The answer is Christ's substitutionary death mentioned in verses 24 and 25. In 24, it says, it speaks of Christ's death as the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, calling Christ's death a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. The answer to how God was just and forgave sins is that God poured out his wrath on a substitute. That Jesus suffered the penalty of the law on behalf of the Ninevites whom God forgave. God's justice is upheld. It's not that the, the, the evil of the Ninevites is never punished. God forgave them having purposed to place their sins on Christ upon the cross. Having purposed to pour out that wrath, that judgment the Ninevites deserved, having purposed to pour that out on Christ as their substitute. And so the death of Christ upholds both the forgiveness that God gives and the justice of God at the same time. If, if, if God did not act in a way that was just, he would be something less than God and he would not be worthy of your worship. And we shouldn't be gathered here today to worship him. But he is just. And he shows that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As Jesus offered himself, having been sent by the Father for this purpose, he offered himself as the propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God, to suffer that wrath on behalf of sinners whom God saves. When the Ninevites repented, God did not choose to just ignore the evil deeds that they had done. God had already purposed to place their evil deeds on Christ. 750 years after saving Nineveh, when God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, it then became clear how God was able to relent of the just punishment of Nineveh's evil, Nineveh's evil and still be just. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, Christ is praised with the following words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that included the Ninevites of Jonah's generation. And that includes people who belong to all the tribes, languages, peoples, and nations of today. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you have a heart for the salvation of the nations? Our text is meant by the Spirit of God to grow within us such a heart. God's warning of judgment is as severe as the Ninevites took it to be. This warning in the Bible is for all people everywhere. As we read in Acts chapter 17, in the Apostle Paul's proclamation at Athens, in verse 30, the Apostle Paul said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This warning of judgment is not the warning of a city being overthrown. This warning spoken of in Acts 17 is a warning of our souls being overthrown for all eternity. God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed 
having given assurance to all by raising that one from the dead. God's command today to repent is a command to repent of one's sins against God, whether those sins be sexual immorality or impurity or sensuality or idolatry or sorcery or enmity or strife or jealousy or fits of anger or rivalries or dissensions, or divisions, or envy, or drunkenness, or orgies, or Paul says anything like these. God's command to repent of our sin is a command to forsake one's sins and turn to the crucified and risen Christ as one Savior and Lord. We have been entrusted with a fuller message than Jonah. For the heart of our message as Christians, as Christ's disciples, the heart of our message is a proclamation of what Christ has done for the salvation of sinners. Jonah's message was 40 days and God's judgment will come. 40 days and the city will be overthrown. Our message is more than a warning of judgment. It is a warning of judgment. but It's also the good news of what Jesus Christ has done his death and resurrection to save sinners. We, we are not to write off the nations as somehow unworthy of the gospel or somehow impossible to reach with the gospel. That there was nothing that made the Ninevites worthy of salvation, but God freely saved them as a display of his grace and mercy. And humanly speaking, you and I would not expect the Ninevites to take Jonah's message to heart. Yet God worked through the simple proclamation of his message from the lips of a reluctant prophet who had been saved by grace to bring one of the greatest cities in the ancient world to its knees before God. If God was able to do so in the Ninevites, then he can certainly do so today in every people group of this world. If Christ ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, then God will bring them to their knees before Christ in repentance and saving faith through the proclamation of His servants. So let us each pray daily for the salvation of the nations. Let us each say to the Lord, Here am I. Use me in some way in your work of saving the nations. Let us generously support the Lord's servants who are going to the nations with the message of Christ. And let us proclaim the message of Christ to the unbelievers whom Christ has placed in our lives, not writing off any individual as unworthy, not writing off any individual as unredeemable. The Lord had a lot to teach Jonah. We're going to see in the next chapter what he sought to teach Jonah. But what we see here is God's heart for the nations. We see God's great work of salvation. And it is to give us a heart that Jonah didn't have. To give us a heart for the nations. A heart for their salvation. Because God's salvation of the nations by grace glorifies the Son and in turn glorifies the Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the magnificent salvation that you have given through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation that is not just for a one, one nation, but a salvation that is for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We so clearly see in this book of Jonah your heart for the nations. Nineveh was not seeking you. They didn't send a request to Israel for a prophet to come and speak to them about Yahweh. They were dead in trespasses and sins. They were dead in their idolatry. They were dead in their violence. But you came to them in your mercy and grace. You sent them this warning of judgment. And you worked in such a mighty way by your Spirit through that proclamation in their hearts and lives, granting repentance unto life, granting faith 
in you. Oh Lord, having seen this in the Old Testament and, and, and knowing the New Testament, oh Lord, may, may, may you grow within us a heart for the nations that reflects your heart for the nations. And Lord, may that be seen now in how we take your word to the unbelievers that you have placed around us, where you have us now. Oh Lord, be glorified in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Would you be glorified in the salvation of men, women, boys, and girls in our community, in our nation, and in every tongue, tribe, and nation unto your eternal glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.